Let me ask you a question. How many of you have been beat up by the last part of that verse? You don't have to show your hands, but um, a lot of preachers draw that verse like an angry cowboy draws his pistol and they beat people and shoot people with it. Don't skip church. Don't skip church. You've got to be there no matter what. Um, and there's certainly a call there, an exhortation, isn't there, to take serious God's call to gather together consistently, weekly, um, and mutually commit yourself to one another. There's benefits to gain. There's a contribution to be made. There's a corporate gathering that we celebrate the, the ongoing work of Christ in our hearts. So there's a warning there. There's a call. There's an exhortation. But there's much more than that. There's not less than that. But there's certainly much more than that. That's a beautiful passage, and it's a powerful passage. And I want to use that passage, specifically the last part there, but I want to connect it to the first part, um, to remind us why in the world do we bother with church? It seems to me, I'm a church planner. I talk to a lot of people week in and week out who are not connected to the church at all. In fact, the majority of people that I talk to have been hurt by the church. They've seen a lot of scandals. They've seen a lot of abuse. They've been wearied. They've been exhausted. They've been hurt, many of them. And it's going to be a long time before they ever darken the doorsteps of a church again. They're just kind of over it. And they'll say something like this, well, I'm spiritual, but I'm not religious. And I don't get into a heated argument because, look, there's what they have never probably had is somebody to sit down and listen to them. I listen. I'm like, I get it. I understand. I know you're hurt. Hey, I've been hurt too by the church. Who hasn't? Anybody here never been hurt by another Christian? <laughs> I mean, you've essentially been hurt by the church then because we all belong to the, uh, to the invisible church, but God calls us to be a part of the local local. Uh, visible manifestation of Christ, which is the church. So I talk to people all the time, and uh, they would say things like that. I'm spiritual, but I'm not religious, or I'm against organized religion. Have you ever heard that one? You know, you, you don't have to laugh and scoff at that when somebody tells you that or get into an argument. Just know that person's been hurt, probably. Or that person misunderstands what the true church is and what God has called it to be, what He has died to make it into. But I hear that a lot. Um, and so I want to answer this question, and maybe this will help you as you... Honestly, let's be honest here. Sometimes we ask this question ourselves. We would never say it out loud. But don't we really have to be here every week? Is it that important? Is it that big of a deal? I mean, I could be getting some good Z's right now. You know, went to bed late, long weekend. I'm kind of tired, ball practice, golfing, the ocean calls from Central Florida, right? There's a lot of other things I could do. Can't I just do church at the beach with my buddies or go on a hike or do church in the deer stand? That's a big one where I'm from. I'm just going to worship God in creation. Uh, that's my church. I've heard that before. Or fill in the blank. Do church at home. I mean, there's a lot of alternatives that people use. And so I want to speak to that just a little bit today. I'm not going to exhaust. This is not a, an exhaustive treatment of that. But I hope it helps you answer maybe the doubts that surface in your own mind and heart and give you a little bit of, I don't like to use the word ammunition, but just some answers for somebody. If they ever approach you and they want to know, why do, you, why do you guys go to church all the time? Is it that big a deal? Yeah, it is. It's a huge deal, and this verse really tells us why. So point number one, just three points today, okay? Point number one, why do we bother with church? Here's the first point. We bother with church because it's not good to be alone. It's not good to be alone. Let me put a slide up here, and I want to show you it may not be immediately clear when you read this passage, but if you dig a little bit deeper, can you guys see this? Look at all these let us, let us, let us. If I was going to preach a, an all-out, full, exegetical sermon today, that would be my, my outline, the three let us. There's three commandments there, let us. Um, 
draw near together, right? Let us hold fast our confession together and let us consider together how to stir one another up. But notice, look a little bit deeper. This is not something you do alone. This is something that you are united through the finished work of Christ to do together. And listen, together you do this better than you can alone. In fact, I would make the argument you can't even do this alone. You know Christianity throughout the New Testament, there are 50-something, I think 55, one another commandments. It's almost this silent argument like you're supposed to be together. God died so that you could unite and be together. And so you are a better Christian together with your family. You're a better organ to 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 to, to better with the body. You know, you don't see a lung driving down the road, do you, on Sundays? If you see a lung by itself, uh, there's no body, it's not functioning, okay? It's, it's, it's gone, or a heart, or a kidney, or a spleen, or an appendix, whatever it is, you can't function without the body. That's why you can't do church in your deer stand by yourself. It's like an oxymoronic way to think about church. It's like, I'm the church. No, you're, you're a member of the church, but you need your body, dude. Where's your... You don't see a foot in an armpit hanging out, just the two of them, you know, on the golf course, even though we're two or three are gathered in his name. And that's a verse that people misuse too, but that's, a, that's another sermon for another day. So uh, let us, let us, let us, and then keep reading on in that passage. I guess I can look at it here. It says in verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of our faith. And then look at 24, let us consider how to stir up, and there it is, one another. One another. This is a mutual thing that's happening amongst believers. Amongst believers. Not even just between two, but amongst believers. Stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to, and here it is together, meet together. Meet together, verse 25, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. This is something we're to do together. This entire book, really, the entire book of Hebrews is calling for this authentic, genuine, blood-bought Christian community, this family, this body. And we're all to do it together. It's something that Christ died to create and He lives to sustain and empower this. And you know, this idea of it's not good to be alone, you know where it comes from, right? It goes all the way back into the Garden of Eden. There's two things that God initially said uh, after He created man. One, He tells us that He created us in His likeness, in His image. We are image-bearing creatures. I mean, just put church aside for a minute. Whether you're a believer or a non-believer, whether you go to church or don't go to church, you reflect something of the nature of your Creator. You do. And what's really interesting about the Genesis account of creation is God, one of the first times He ever speaks of Himself in plural language is when He creates man. And He says, let, you remember this? Let us make man in our image. Did you know that we bear the image of a triune God? That means that when God created us, I know this is deep. Put the scooby gear on, okay? God is a trinity, tri-unity. There's one God, but there's three persons in the Godhead. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. So when he said, let us make, make man in our image, we only reflect the image of God who belongs to community within himself when we're in community. So listen, check this out. An image-bearing creature all alone is not telling the truth about what God is like. That's profound when you think about it. And that's why the first thing God said about man is it's, he's made in our image. The second thing he says, it's not good to be alone. It is not good to be alone. So God created a helper for Adam who was suitable to him, who complimented him, right? Some people call that complementarianism. 
that God created a helper for Adam who was different from him, but like him, right? Different, but like him. That's what the church is. You know, the, the one characteristic you see in cults is that everybody thinks exactly the same way. They have all the same preferences. They all enjoy moonlight walks on the beach and they eat sushi and play frisbee golf and man, don't disagree. Nobody can disagree with one another. That's not the church though. The church has um, this unity, but it also has diversity. And that's the beauty that you see all throughout the New Testament. You even see it in the way that Jesus called his disciples. Did you know he called uh, Simon the religious zealot? Not religious, excuse me. Simon the zealot was one of the disciples and so was Matthew the tax collector. I don't know if you've ever thought about this. They came from two totally different backgrounds, but they were united in Jesus. If it weren't for Jesus and the gospel, they would have killed each other because a zealot went around with a dagger hidden in his cloak and he would find a traitor. He would find a Jew who had betrayed his people and worked for Rome and would gather taxes more than he needed from Jewish citizens. And he would find one of them and he would slice that dagger into their stomach and run away. Matthew was a tax collector, and he was a disciple too. Those guys hung out. They broke bread together. They didn't think exactly the same way, I'm sure, about politics. But you know what? They thought the same way about their sin and their Savior, and that's what the church is. We, it's not good for us to be alone. And you know what? We know this. We know, we are, this is so hardwired into our DNA. We know this. I was reading an article the other day, and it was called Changing the Way We Gather. And it was written by... Um, a couple who was millennial. Now, by, by millennial, I mean if you were born uh, after 1977, uh, but before, help me out here, 19, before 2000, yeah, you're considered a millennial age, okay? This was written by somebody that was a millennial age for people their age. Um, and they said this, they said, young adults have never been more globally connected, but locally isolated. Would you agree with that? Globally connected, but locally isolated. So what in the world does that mean? That means there's this illusion that we're, man, we're just really connected to one another, but it's a myth, it's a mirage. When you get closer to inspect it, it evaporates. And he cited an example. This is not me, and I'm not digging on millennials. I love millennials. I'm almost a millennial. I'm just, I just beat the deadline to be a Gen Xer, okay? So I think I, I understand millennials a little bit. But he said this, this author, he said, an American millennial feels more comfortable setting up an overseas loan to a farmer in Kenya than bringing chicken soup to his neighbor. Do you see that? Globally connected, but locally disconnected, isolated. And, and I think a big factor in that is all the craze about social media. And I'm not going to preach a sermon against that because technology is a blessing. And I don't, I'm not telling you something you don't already know, that a lot of that is just artificial and it creates a lot of problems social problems, cultural problems. We are really disconnected. You even see people that go out to eat, they're sitting next to each other, and they're on their phones. They're not connected. It's not really a relationship. And we know that already. Well, this millennial is, is pointing this out, and he says, increased instances of isolation, loneliness, depression, and suicide now riddle the United States. Suicide is now the third leading cause of death among young adults. Wow. The lack of deep connection is felt. And then he says this, and this got my attention. Since most young adults will claim to be spiritual but not religious, they are not attracted to traditional religion. In other words, they wouldn't be attracted to a church like this. 
But since God hardwired us, it's in our DNA that we know we're supposed to be in community, what happens is people go out and they create the thing they're missing. Now check this out. Think, think about this with me. This article, it took 10 institutions that were like localized throughout the U.S. and that were more organic, like started out as a grass mo- grassroot kind of movement, and it characterized them by six themes Six dynamics that it saw in every one of them. And, and I want to read these to you. And I promise I'm going somewhere with this, okay? Community. Six things that, that you see in these uh, efforts by young adults, millennials, to create something that they're lacking. One, you would see community. Two, social transformation. Three, personal transformation. Four, creativity. Five, purpose. And six, accountability. All those things are there. Community, transformation, creativity, purpose, and accountability. Now, that, that smells a little bit like a church to me, doesn't it, you? But they're not going to go to church, okay, because they're not religious. They're spiritual. But they're hardwired for community. So this is one of the examples it gave. CrossFit. Now, look, I'm not dogging CrossFit. I promise you. I love CrossFit. Well, I love, I love the idea of CrossFit, okay? Um, maybe not... <laughs> I love CrossFit. I used to actually work at a gym when I was younger. I was a trainer. I know you couldn't tell that now. So I'm not, I'm not the preacher like CrossFit's ungodly. I think it's great. We should be in shape. All I'm saying is CrossFit fits the bill for all these things. There's community there. There's transformation that's there. There's purpose. There is accountability. There's creativity. Man, they come up with all these new plow metric ways to get your heart rate up and anaerobic exercises. And it's really incredible. And there are, I read that there are something like 10,000 affiliate CrossFit gyms in the United States now. This is like a burgeoning movement now. And there are 4 million users. And the culture, the organic culture of CrossFit is so important that the people who started this, they don't even let outsiders buy into it and own, and own the stock. You know what I mean by that? They don't want some outsider to come in and take control and change the, change the culture of their movement. So in order to own a CrossFit gym... This article said you have to be a member of one and you have to experience personal transformation, fill out an application and testify how you've been changed so that you believe. So you can't even be a member of CrossFit or own one, I guess, unless you're a believer. That sounds familiar too, doesn't it? But check this out. Here's the testimony. Somebody, I want to put it up here because I want you to see. Remember, here's the argument. It's not good for us to be alone, and we know that in our mind, but the first place we're going to go is not the church. We've been hurt by it. We're turned off by it. So we're going to go and we're going to create community somewhere. We are. The people that don't, I'll tell you in a minute, it doesn't end well. But check out this CrossFit user's testimony. This is pretty phenomenal. My CrossFit gym is everything to me. I've met my boyfriend and some of my very best friends through CrossFit. When my boyfriend and I started apartment hunting this spring, we immediately zeroed in on the neighborhood closest to our gym, even though it would increase our commute to work. We did this because we couldn't bear to leave our community. At our gym, we have babies and little kids crawling around everywhere, and it has been an amazing experience to watch those little ones grow up. CrossFit is family, laughter, love, and community. I can't imagine my life without the people I've met through it. I'm not dogging that. I'm just saying, let's just... Let's just say what this really is. This is their community. And if you're a part of something like that and somebody offers you the community that the church, they'll, they'll laugh at you and say, ha, are you kidding me? Why, would I, why do I need that? I've got accountability. I've got 
personal transformation. I've got my people. They hold me accountable. I read at some CrossFit gyms, if you don't show up, they contact you. They're like, dude, where were you? (laughs) I can't get away with that anymore as a pastor. I just sent a text. I'm like, hey, how's it going? Haven't seen you in a while. You know, smiley face. Uh Uh-uh, that doesn't fly. But other communities, they get it, don't they? They get it. That almost sounds like a church because we are inescapably built for community. We are. God made us that way. And this passage in Hebrews tells us what kind of community that is supposed to be. Did you guys know that Ted Kaczynski, the Unabomber, do you know a lot of the things that they say precipitated his going psycho was he spent 20 years in a 10-foot by 12-foot log cabin, no, not a log cabin, plywood. He built this in the woods in Montana out of plywood. No plumbing, no electricity by design. That's the way he wanted it. And no people. For 20 years, that dude uh, eked out an existence up there, living off the fat of the land, and he had very little, if any, human contact for 20 years. And then he went crazy. And I would submit to you, I know there's a lot of other factors. He went to Harvard, and he subjected himself to a lot of weird experiments psychologically. But listen, when we withdraw from community, when we isolate ourselves from it or ignore it altogether, bad things happen. Bad things happen because we're not being true to who God created us to be. And so we're all looking for community, and that's a good thing. We should be. But we should be looking for the kind of community that brings about transformation, spiritual transformation, and the kind of community that is genuine, that is authentic, that's not hypocritical, that's not judgmental, that's not legalistic, and that ought to be the church. God died to create that, to build that. Jesus said, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Billy Graham has a quote. He passed away at 99 years old. What an amazing... um, He was called America's pastor for a lot of reasons. And all the people, the scores of people that came to Christ through his ministry. It's just a testimony that Billy Graham preached the gospel. Amen? Well, here's a slide with a... Excuse me, a quote from him. He said, excuse me, years ago, church goers are like coals in a fire. When they cling together, they keep the flame aglow. When they separate, they die out. That's true, isn't it? When they separate, they die out. So it's, we know this, we're, we're hardwired for this, the Bible says this, Christian leaders remind us of this, but what happens? So often, what happens is what happened to a lady named Anne Rice. She was a famous novelist, I think she wrote some books about vampires or something. Anyway, she's pretty famous, uh, and there's a lot of problems with even her connection to the church. She was a Roman Catholic for a while, but she said this. It was, this was a famous statement she made back in 2010. Check this out. She said, For those who care, and I understand if you don't, today I quit being a Christian. I'm out. I remain committed to Christ, as always, but not to being Christian or to being part of Christianity. It's simply impossible for me to belong to this quarrelsome, hostile, disputatious, and deservedly infamous group. For ten years, I've tried. I've failed. I'm an outsider. My conscience will allow nothing else. Now, if we were all honest, we've probably all been somewhere where her testimony is, haven't we? Don't raise your hand, but haven't we all probably at some time experienced the temptation to say, you know what, this is too hard. I'm out of here. This is just too much. The hypocrisy, the weariness, 
the letdown by the leaders, the exhaustion, I'm over-serving, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm over-committing myself, we're having all these meetings and I'm not getting anything out of this, I just can't do this anymore, I'm out. That happens to so many people and I think one of the reasons that it happens is that we have forgotten why we gather for one reason, why do we gather together and what makes it work? Where is the true power to, to, to achieve this transformation that, that God talks about and promises in His Word? And that's in this passage too. I think all of us have, have experienced something at one point or another about what Ann talks about though. So what God has shown me from Grace Life Church over the past three years is this. And I'm just being totally honest and I don't want to get emotional. Here's what He's shown me. I desperately need you guys. All of you. I need every single one of you in my life because I'm not a strong Christian apart from you. That's how God designed me. That's how he designed you. Um, You strengthen me. You encourage me. You provoke me and stir me up. So I'm going to be half a Christian if I'm a Christian at all. I mean, the argument could be made. um, Can you stop being a part of Christianity and still be connected to Christ? Uh, I think Anne's a little confused on that because the Bible doesn't know anything about that kind of Christianity at all. You can't pit either Jesus against the Bible, Jesus against the church any more than you can pit the church against Jesus. Jesus was not against the church. He was not against organized religion. Um, I mean, Jesus is not for disorganized religion. That's the only other option, right? Jesus is against false religion. That's the kind of religion he's against. He's against the kind of religion that leaves uh, widows barren and doesn't clothe the naked and doesn't feed the poor and doesn't provide shelter for the homeless. He's against the kind of religion that doesn't tell the truth about God, that's legalistic and that's hypocritical and that's greedy. That's the kind of religion Jesus was against. And he cleansed the temple. He didn't destroy it, okay? Jesus tried to organize the temple. He wants us to, to gather together in the right frame of mind, in the right spirit, with the right purpose. But I've, God's shown me the last three years that I need you, and hopefully he's shown you that you need one another. You thought I was going to say that you need me, didn't you? <laughs> no, you need teaching, though. You need a, an elder. You need a pastor. That's why the church is so beautiful, because God has organized this. There's order. There's structure to it. We are a body, and we are not... Uh, independent. We're not isolated. We're not blocks of cold ice floating around bumping into one another. We are a body. We're a building. We're, we're um, a field. All these things show interdependence on one another. You know, you don't see a piece of a building out somewhere saying, look how beautiful I am. You believe my architect? No. Man, we're all bricks and we belong together in this spiritual enterprise that God is creating called the church. So the power term in this text is one another, and it means mutual. And here's what's really interesting about this passage. If you, if you look at it again, in the, starting in verse 24, he says, And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day, the day drawing near. These one another's, you see them all throughout the Bible, especially here. So here's what this passage means. You can come to church... And you can be taught, you can hear a sermon, you can hear a lesson, and you can get it. It can resonate with you. You can be comforted. You can be challenged a little bit and provoked by what you hear and what you see and what you experience and feel and all of that. But until that is reciprocated, until that happens mutually amongst yourself, we're not obeying this passage. That's why I believe this is so much more than just a finger wag to say, ah, don't skip church, you know? 
Just go, just do it, just be there. Would you check it off the box, go, and then as fast as you can, get your kids and get out of here, right? That's what a lot of people view church as. No, this verse is calling us to something deeper than that. It's calling us to be intrusive into one another's lives. That's what stirring up means, to speak truth to one another and receive truth from other people. So if you're shepherded by me, and, or you just come to hear a speaker, but you're not in turn mutually doing this one another ministry, we're not being the church. We're not. And that's why when Jeff and I planned this church, we do everything we possibly can to facilitate this. I, I, home groups, that's the whole idea of that. And I know not everyone providentially can go to one, but I hope that you're a part of some kind of Christian community, even outside this gathering. Because it's hard for this kind of thing to happen just here on Sunday, honestly. And you just have a few minutes, if you get here early, a few minutes afterwards. This is definitely something that's important. And I know that church church is, is a challenge. And I understand why a lot of millennials and a lot of other people distrust anything that has an organizational or institutional stamp on it. But listen, this is God's church. He died for it. And that's why we bother with it. Amen? People say, I had a bad experience with church and religion, therefore Jesus must hate both of them. But that's just not true. And listen, that's bad logic. That doesn't work with anything else in the world. I mean, can you say, you know what? I had a bad experience at work. This whole career and paycheck and salary thing, I'm done with it. Well, how's that going to work if you're the breadwinner? That's not going to fly, is it? Or with food. You ever had a bad meal before? What do you say? I'm done with the nourishment thing. Forget it. It's too hard. No, you're going to find something to eat, right? Or, I mean, fill in the blank. You can do that with anything. That's just terrible logic. It doesn't work that way. Of course, it's challenging. Listen, I'll, give you, I'll share with you a secret. Anything worth doing is going to be challenging and hard, especially spiritually. Because, listen, Satan hates the church. And Satan hates God. And he hates anybody who represents God. And he opposes them violently and vehemently. The forces of darkness are targeting God's church. And so we shouldn't expect it to be a, a cakewalk or a ride in the park. It's going to be challenging. It is. But Jesus is not against the church. He died for the church. So that's the first point, okay? It's not good for you to be alone. And that's more implicit in the passage. Now I want to really dig into it. Second point, we bother with church because we have something to gain here and we have something to give here, okay? Now, look, look again at this, the second part of this. In verse 24, it says, and let us consider. So hit the pause button. That word consider, it actually means to stop and meditate and think deeply about something. It means to actually pay attention. So Hebrews is calling us to, all of us together, stop for a minute, pay attention, and think about something deeply. Or what are we supposed to think about? Well, look what it says. Let us, man, I lose my place in this Bible. Um... Consider, let us, so we're doing this together, consider how to what? Stir up one another to love and good works. Now, man, I got to be honest with you. I can't, I got to be honest about what this passage says. This word, stir one another up, it's not a comfortable word, guys. It's not. I tried every which way I could to be like, did I read that right? I look up words in Greek when I'm studying for a passage. And you know what this word means? It means sour wine, <laughs> The noun form of this verb means sour wine. It means sharp disagreement. It got really quiet in here, didn't it? You know what it means? It means to almost irritate somebody. That you're annoyed by something. Now I know, I know, hang on. Now let me finish here, okay? 
So what in the world is the, is the author of Hebrews saying here? He's saying there are times in your Christian life where somebody has such a level and degree of love for you, they are willing to intrude into your life to obey what Christ has died to create. Did you know that? Have you ever done that to somebody? And you might not be received well. Now look, what I'm not talking about, guys, I'm not talking about beating somebody over the head with your Bible. I'm not talking about thinking you're the Holy Spirit and you're going to police people's behavior and you're snooping around. You're like the drug dog at the airport. You ever feel welcomed by them? They walk up, hey, how you doing? You got any cocaine in here? Marijuana? Is there any bad behavior? Is there any legalism? I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about there's, there's such a close-knit mutual love and respect and community together that when you see something that's out of step with the gospel, okay, it's unbecoming for a Christian, you are willing to stop, and that's the big thing, stop and think about it, meditate on it, ponder it, pay attention, what would help this person? What would honor Christ in this situation, and what would help this person to grow through this? How can I help them to grow? How can I challenge them in a way that's respectful and that honors them? That's what this passage is calling us to do. You know, a beautiful picture of how this happened in the New Testament is what happened with Peter and Paul. Did you guys know these are like two titanic apostles? And, you know, Peter um, was the first apostle that was sent to the Gentiles to bring the gospel to them. And then Paul took the baton from him and was preaching the gospel to all the Gentiles. And it was a mystery and nobody understood it at the time that they thought the gospel was just for Jews, but it wasn't. It was for everybody. And this is what happened. Check this out. The apostle Peter started becoming legalistic. You know, he preached the gospel to the Gentiles and said, we're saved by grace alone, by faith alone, and Christ alone, and that's it. But then some of the Jews started coming down to where he was preaching the gospel and he felt this pressure to become, you know, Judaistic again and say, well, yeah, that's true. You're saved by faith alone and Christ alone, but it's probably a good thing if you keep getting circumcised and, and if you observe all these feasts and if you don't eat pork. And Paul got word of this. He heard about it. Check this out. He writes this in Galatians chapter 2. When Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face. And wouldn't you have liked to have been there and seen it? This is like Clash of the Titans. I would have liked to have been there and seen it. How much courage do you think it took from Paul to confront and irritate, to be sour wine to the right-hand guy of Jesus? How much courage do you think that took? How much love do you think that took? Is that a risky thing? That is. Have you ever had to do that with somebody that you care about? Say, hey dude, time out. Come here for a minute, man. Let's, t- let's talk about something for a minute. You know, you're, you're kind of new in the faith and you professed Christ and man, I care about you and, and I, I want to be a friend to you and I'm seeing this pattern in your life uh, and it grieves me, man. It grieves my heart and it's very dangerous for you and I see, you, I see there's a drifting, there's a pattern where you're becoming more and more isolated and there's behaviors that are kind of toxic and you're setting, you know, you're confusing people and this is out of step with the gospel, bro. And I love you too much to just let this go on because Christ died, not so that you continue in this pattern. He died so that we can can take this to the cross together and we can help each other. Man, that's hard to do and it's not always going to be well received, is it? Because what's the Bible? The Bible says something like this in the book of Proverbs. It's better to meet a she-bear robbed of her cubs than a fool in his folly. And I'm not saying Christians in sin are, are fools in their folly. But in some measure, when somebody is so hooked on a sin, right... They're so in it. They can't see. They're blinded. They're just, 
going blindly to the slaughter, man, you confront them in love and sometimes it's like, watch out, you are Satan himself and you're going to suffer for it. But listen to what Peter said. I opposed him to his face when I saw that his conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. I said to Peter before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? He's saying you're being legalistic, dude. You're compromising here. You're telling lies about salvation by grace alone in Christ. You're telling lies about it. We can't tolerate that. All these Gentiles are coming under this false teaching now, you know? Which, there's another instruction there. How easy is it for somebody like Peter to slide into legalism? I mean, if he did it, we have to watch ourselves, don't we? But let me ask you a question. I want to ask you this question. Are you willing to give people in your Christian community access like that to you? See, that's hard. That's why a lot of people, they say, I want to be committed and I want to be in community. But do they really want to be in this kind of community? That's, that's radical. That's a radical thing because, listen, most of us just want our freedom. It's like, I just want to live how, however I see fit. Yeah, I'll do the Christian thing and I'll, I'll do the kind of the church thing. But I am my own man. I'm the captain of my own soul. Right? I'm going to live however I see fit. And Jesus says, no, that's not the church. That's not Christianity. We are a body, and we care, and that's why we bother with church. Something unique happens when we gather together that doesn't happen in any other organism or organization in the world because Christ is here, the Holy Spirit is here. Something unique happens. Something powerful happens. We gather to be equipped, and then we scatter to evangelize. So are you willing to invite that kind of access into your life, and are you willing to be that kind of person in another Christian's life. So that's the hard thing, okay? That's, that's the only hard thing in the passage. That literally means, though, stir somebody up. That means you're thinking about it, and it, and it could be irritating to them. You're, a good translation would be provoking. Consider how you can provoke somebody that needs to be provoked. But here's the other part, and it's, it's better, okay? Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but... And then check this out. Encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. Encourage. That word, it's a, it's a compound word in Greek, and it, it means para, um, parakletos, okay? And it means to come alongside somebody and to call them. Parakaleo is actually what it is. Para is come alongside. Kaleo is to call out. So you are coming alongside another Christian who's suffering, who's weak, who's struggling, who needs help, and you're calling out to them to encourage them, to help them. That's a beautiful picture, isn't it? So if you could say these two ministries that are simultaneously going on in the church, there's stimulation, like the sour wine, the provoking, and there's also support. There's also support. Now, I've seen churches that major on one or the other, and that never works. Never works. It's both and. It's not either or, it's both and. You have to be a part of a church where the gospel is preached, so there's this boldness, there's this courage to speak very frankly to people who need to hear it, but there also has to be such love and tenderness there that you're at the same time, I've said it like this before, if you're going if, if to just be a part of the provoking ministry, you better have a lot of capital built up with somebody. If you're going to speak like that in their life that could be perceived as irritating and annoying, you better have made a lot of deposits of support before you withdraw right? Or, or there may not be anything in there for you to cash out. Does that make sense? Somebody asked me before, they're like, hey, can I? Uh, they heard somebody preach and they said, I want to offer some, 
some criticism to this person. What do you think? And I said, well, let me ask you a question. How many times have you encouraged that person when they preached? How many? Is that an ongoing? Would it be a like drop out of the clear blue sky for you to walk up to them and say, man, that was a great message. And I promise I'm not digging for compliments here, okay? Um, that was a great message. That really challenged me. It helped me. Things have become clear now. I'm a stronger Christian. I appreciate your ministry. I said, well, they fall flat on the floor if you ever said that to them because you never have before. And they're like, man, I, maybe, I don't know. And I said, well, then I would give some really serious thought whether or not you're the one that needs to go to them and provoke, right? Because there's got to be both of these things. If all you ever do is just encourage people, they're in a sinful lifestyle, they're about to run off on a, the edge of a cliff, right, and commit spiritual suicide, and you're just, things are going great, brother, fist bump, high five, Jesus is love, and that's all you ever talk about, um, man, that's, that's off balance. If on the other side, all you ever do is stimulate, provoke, irritate, confront, that's terrible. And I would say this, I think most churches, eh, they kind of lean this way, right? Just, they just hammer people, not only in the preaching, but the culture. And by the way, the preaching kind of creates this culture in the church. That's why I'm not always just up here irritating and trying to provoke. I'm trying to share gospel truth, gospel nuggets to encourage you and stimulate you and stir you up to love and good works. So both of those things are important. And listen, this happened to us. Uh, I told Sarah I wanted to share this today. This happened to me in California. I was a member of a big church, but there were a lot of pastors there. And one of the Sunday schools I was a part of was about 500 people. And the pastor there, his name was Don Green, and he was also my employee. And I'm not going to belabor the story. I've told you before, Sarah got really sick when we were in California. During the last semester of my time there, she got really sick out of the clear blue sky. She couldn't sleep. Dark thoughts started storming around in her mind. I mean, we were scared. It's the scaredest I've ever been in my life. I thought, man, my wife, is she going, is she having a mental breakdown? What is going on here? You know, she had just abruptly stopped nursing our son, and it turns out that threw her into a tailspin of emotions and having really just dark thoughts and couldn't be left alone. She wasn't suicidal and she wasn't going to hurt anybody or anything like that. She just didn't trust herself. And man, it threw us for a tailspin. We didn't know what to do. And I was doing what, up to that point in my life, uh, this was my conviction that, okay, there's sin somewhere. And my heart and her heart, I mean, we fasted, we prayed, I repented of every sin I could ever imagine doing in my past, my present, something I was going to do. I didn't know. I mean, I tried everything. And this thing, it got worse. It didn't get better, it got worse. And I didn't know what to do. And I had just run out of options. And I went, and Don was my pastor, and he was my friend. And we had mutual respect to one another. I said, Don, I need to talk to you, man. My wife and I, we really need help. I don't know where else to go. So I show up in his office, and I'm explaining all this. And I said, man, I'm just, I'm just examining my heart. I don't know if, this, if God's chastening me, if this is demonic, if this is spiritual warfare. And he said, Tommy, Tommy. He said, you, you don't need to be morbidly introspective about this. He said, I think this may be something medical related. And he said, it's not a sin for you to go and see your family physician. He said, and describe for him these symptoms. Tell him what Sarah's going through. And he said, you, you're overlooking something here. He said, I don't think you're living in sin at all. And he said, I just want to encourage you. It's not a sin to go see a doctor. And you know what? We did, and you've heard the rest of the story. It was a classic textbook case of postpartum depression. And they had to put Sarah on a medication for a few months, and it got her sleep back on balance, and bam, she was fine. Um, but you know what? Had I not had that encouragement for him, that support, that's what the word means, Don Green came alongside of me. And he called out to me and spoke truth into my heart, and it encouraged me and put me back on the right track. I was thinking the wrong way about something God had 
sovereignly introduced into mine and Sarah's life, I thought God was punishing us or he was chastening us or the devil was, was attacking us. And that wasn't, I mean, Satan could have been involved. I don't know. I can't see everything. But I know now it was something medical related and I needed to go see a doctor and I didn't sin in doing that, right? But, you know, without that encouragement, I wouldn't have done that. For all I know, we could both still be in California and be in the loony bin together. I don't know. We all need support. You need support and you need stimulation. Man, I had a lot of other things I was going to say about that. There's, there's blind spots that we all have that we can't see and we need help. Sam Albury said this, Sunday should be a weekly antidote to me-centered living and thinking as we reorient our lives and loves around God and others before ourselves. Um, have you ever heard this saying? I saw a meme on this on social media once and it just made me angry because it's so not what, what the church is or what Christianity is. It said this, a wise man can always be found alone. A weak man can always be found in a crowd. And it looked—it was a cool meme, man. It had like coyotes in the background and <laughs> or uh, wolves in the background howling at a moon. And I'm thinking, don't wolves go in packs? <laughs> that doesn't make sense. Why don't we use a... But anyway, man, I started thinking about it. And the more I thought about it, the angrier I got. I'm like, man, that is just a lie straight out of hell. If, if a wise man can always be found alone, then Jesus wasn't wise. Because he was a, with a band of people just about all the time. And he broke away for private times of prayer. And if a weak man can always be found in a crowd, then Jesus was weak. Right? You see how easy it is, though, to get riled up? You see that? You're like, yeah, man, I'm, I'm the captain of my own soul. I don't need nobody. I got this. No, you don't got this. And the lone ranger in Christianity is usually the dead ranger. And you're easy pickings. You're easy pickings. The enemy would love it if you would just, just isolate yourself. Yeah, just ditch that whole church thing. Be an entity in and of yourself. You got perfect spiritual sight. You can see everything. You know your own heart better than anybody else. So you got this, man. No, you don't got this. That's why this verse is here. Uh, and man, history is littered with the lives of people who have neglected this or ignored this. So last thing here, okay? I'll make this quick. Uh, first of all, another quote by Martin Luther. Can you put that up? Luther said this, at home in my own house, there is no warmth or vigor in me, but in the church where the multitude is gathered together, a fire is kindled in my heart and it breaks its way through. Man, I, I can just tell you, I, that resonates with me. When I'm together with God's people, whether it's here or in a group or in my home group, man, I, I'm, I just feel a fire. I feel a power there because we are better together. We are better together. We suffer better together. We rejoice better together believe it or not, because it, it, it helps us resist pride when we celebrate together God's victories in our life. Everything that we do as a Christian, we do it better together. Even times of prayer and worship, it's better and more together. There's a special promise of God's blessing when we do these things. Um, and you know what? I want to apply this real quick before I go to the final point. So what would this mean for us? What are some ways that we can consider uh, both of these things? How can you encourage this church how can you support and stimulate this church? You know, one of the things that we really need here right now are people to serve. I think there's a, a, an, maybe an underlying assumption here is that we're serving one another. You know, some of the people that encourage me here, they're not up here on the stage um, all the time. I mean, the musicians encourage me, certainly. Um, and if you have the gift of, of music... You need to talk to Zach. Make an appointment to see Zach or John or one of the other members of the band and say, you know what, I think I have a gift that God would want me to use to help mutually edify this body and encourage others. Or listen, 
A big need we have right now is people to help in children's ministry. Christy Roth does a great job at that, and she needs your help. And listen, don't be intimidated if you don't feel like you're gifted as a teacher or if you're scared to change a diaper. You don't have to do either of those things. We'll find a place that's well-suited for you um, in this season of your life where you feel the most gifted, and we'll, we'll put you to work and let you serve. That's one way you can consider how to encourage people. It's not just a spoken word thing. Sometimes it's just by your service, through your example. We need help greeting. Eli's doing a great job greeting, but listen, we lost some good greeters. We sent some really of our best greeters to uh, a Grace Life Beachside, and then Bush Smith and his wife, he was the head greeter, and they moved to Georgia. We really need help in those areas. So that's something you can pray about and think about, and you can talk to Diane. She's our serve connector. If you feel like you have some spiritual gifts and they're not being deployed, they're not being discovered and, and, and used for the body, talk to Diane. Set up an appointment with her and we'll talk. We want to unleash. We want to put the ball in your hands, okay? So this church is the best church it can be. And here's the last thing. We bother with church not only because it's not good to be alone and not only because we have something to give, we have something to gain. We also bother with church because Jesus died for the church. Now this is the most powerful thing in this passage. Look at it with me. Look at verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence... And that means boldness. That means audacity. That means there's not a shred of intimidation at all. Since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. This is the most beautiful and powerful thing in this entire passage. Because the hinge that all of this turns on is the gospel. It's what Jesus has, has come to do for us on our behalf. And the whole language here is talking about drawing near to God, getting near the center of where God is at. Did you guys know that in the Old Testament, the holy place that he mentions here, the holy place was in um, the tabernacle and in the temple, and it was called the Holy of Holies. Did you guys know this? And there was the Ark of the Covenant there. It was the greatest, clearest symbol of the presence of God in the whole Old Testament. God's presence was said to be there in a unique and special way that it wasn't anywhere else. But here's the problem. That's the presence of God. That's where all the people needed to get. We need to be where God is, don't we? We need to be in the presence of God because why? That's where true change happens. That's where transformation happens. When you're in the presence of God, if you're greedy, the gospel melts that greed and you become magnanimous. You become radically generous. If you have a problem with deception, you're in the presence of God, you're transformed. You become an honest person. You don't feel like you have to manipulate and exploit people anymore. There's love there. If you have a problem with impurity in the presence of God, that fire of His, of his presence just melts that and you pursue purity. All these different things that happen to us. When we're proud, we become humble and compassionate. When we're selfish, we become others-focused. That happens in the presence of God. But check this out. Here's the problem. In the Old Testament, you couldn't get near the presence of God. Did you know that? It's the Holy of Holies. It's behind this thick, beautifully woven tapestry called a curtain. And only one person could ever go back there one day a year, and it was the high priest on the Day of Atonement, the Yom Kippur, they call it. 
And check this out. In order for this high priest to go back there, he had to go through this nerve-wracking list of preparation. He had to bathe this many times this way. He had to put on certain linen underclothes, certain overclothes, had to have a breastplate. It was crazy, all the things he had to do. And you had to know when this dude went back there, he was shaking in his sandals. What if he forgot something? What if his heart wasn't pure? What if he hadn't done enough? That's how we feel sometimes, right? Being in God's presence, if we're honest. So he would go there once a year, and he even wore tassels on his robe that had bells on them so they would know that if the bells stop, that means kaplunk, he's dead. And they would have a rope. I'm serious. There'd be a rope tied around him. They could pull him out because nobody could go back there. Now, how intimidating is that? Do you think anybody ever went into the Holy of Holies with confidence and audacity back then? Not on your life. Not on your life. You couldn't probably bribe somebody to just, hey, dude, I dare you. Run in there and touch the Ark of the Covenant and, and come back. And I'll give you, you know, some shekels or something. No, it didn't happen. Because there were stories of what happened when you touched it. Remember, Uzzah, pfft, obliterated. And um, the two priests that offered profane fire before the Lord, they were evaporated on the spot, right? So being in the presence of God is the, most, uh, the thing that you needed the most, but it was impossible for you. Impossible for you. And it goes all the way back to the garden. You know the perfect community was the Garden of Eden? Eden means paradise in Hebrew. The Garden of Eden, that was their community. They had everything they needed there. God's presence was there. They walked with Him in the cool of the day. The animals were there. There was harmony. There was mutual understanding and respect. And then sin came in, and what happened? They were banished, booted, out of the presence of God. And check this out. There were flaming swords with cherub, with these mighty angels, standing to guard the entrance at the east side of Eden so that nobody could ever get back in the garden. So, man, no matter where you look in the Old Testament, we're doomed. We can't get back in the garden where God's presence is, where there's paradise. We can't go behind the curtain of the Holy of Holies because God's presence will incinerate us and destroy us. So do you get the message that the Hebrews writer is saying here? He's saying, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, then let us draw near. Let us stimulate one another. Let us motivate one another. Do you see what he's saying? We have full-out access into the presence of God now because of Jesus. Because, listen, Jesus marched right into the presence of God and was destroyed on our behalf, right? In a sense, He was. And what had to happen for us to get in there after Jesus marched in is Jesus had to leave the presence of God. Those flaming swords at the Garden of Eden, that's, that represents the sword of God's justice, and somebody had to be slaughtered with that sword another in order for us to get back in and it was jesus he was the lamb of god who was slain from the foundation of the world now we can march right into the presence of god with confidence with audacity because jesus had to march right outside the presence of god outside the city alienate himself you know from his friends he was rejected he was forsaken he was deserted nobody encouraged jesus when he was on the cross they mocked him they spit on him. They plucked his beard out. They offered him sour wine, but on a stick, right? And he rejected it. Jesus absorbed the wrath of God so that we can enter into his presence. And it cost him his life. His body was broken. His blood was shed so that we never have to be in the presence of God and feel like we're not welcome there. That will never, ever happen because, listen, nobody here did anything to earn your way into God's presence, so there's nothing you can do 
to disqualify yourself from being there. Isn't that beautiful? That's a picture of the gospel. And all of that is what motivates us to do this ministry, this one another, this stimulating and encouraging. And that's why we bother with church. That's the message.